Welcome to the show, and boy, do we have a good one for you today. Um, unfortunately, we are now on day 746 of continuing to talk about one Joseph Rogan, uh, but now yours truly is wrapped up in the scandal a wee bit, so we'll talk about that. There's a lot to say about that. i got to give you the update as to what's going on with Rogan and um, the reaction from Spotify and the reaction from the media, and uh, it's it'll be a beefy one, that's for sure. I'm going to leave with that in just a second. Um, we're also going to talk, after the Rogan segment, which will be a long one, we're going to talk about um, CIA propaganda shut down by a journalist in real time. That was phenomenal. Trump and Pence are now arguing in public, viciously, with each other. Uh, yummy in my tummy. Bill Maher defends Whoopi Goldberg, and then I got some real substantive stuff later on in the show. Uh, UBI study with homeless people, and the results are phenomenal. You're not going to want to miss that. Johnson and Johnson, Johnson, blah, 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 blah. Johnson, 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 Johnson and Johnson is trying. I still can't talk. This is amazing. It shouldn't be that hard to say the words Johnson and Johnson, but I'm struggling. Johnson and Johnson is trying to weasel its way out of paying uh, cancer victims of baby powder. So that is uh, corporate malfeasance of the highest order. And we'll also talk about Chris Cuomo getting a $9 million settlement. $9 million settlement. That's crazy from uh, CNN and why that is. All right, so without further ado, let's get started. And like I said, let's kick it off with one Joseph Rogan. So the saga of Joe Rogan continues. Uh, We are now on day number 746 straight of continuing to talk about Joe Rogan. He is dominating the national dialogue. 
to the point where, you know, people in my life who aren't really politically involved and aren't really online too much are texting me about it. My mom texted me something about what's going on with Joe Rogan. So um, in order to give you the new update, which, by the way, includes yours truly very directly, um, let me go ahead and yet again rehash the backstory so you can see how we got to where we are now. So it all started when Joe Rogan had on Dr. Malone and Dr. McCullough. Uh, these are two anti-vaccine doctors who, listen, I'm no fan of them at all. And I actually think it's fair to say they spread vaccine misinformation. They take, you know, little bits and pieces of data that uh, are cherry-picked to try to build a case that the vaccine is at least very questionable when the overwhelming bulk of the data and the evidence is on the other side of that argument. And I don't know what the exact number is, but probably 95% or 99% of doctors and scientists say, look, it's, it's safe and effective and you should get the vaccine. Uh, there was a study that came out of France, over 20 million people, uh, and they found that the vaccine reduces severe illness, hospitalization, and death with COVID by over 90%. So, I mean, that's the broad strokes. That's not to say there aren't some terrible side effects in some people with the vaccine, but that doesn't mean you can just write off the vaccine wholly because the amount of good it's done is way outweighed by the amount of bad it's done. So um, Malone and McCullough went on the podcast, and as a result of that, you know, mainstream media covered that, and they were apoplectic over it. I wish what the media did was instead of sort of throwing up their hands and trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater and sort of prod Spotify to ax Joe, I just wish they went claim for claim with Malone and McCullough and said, look, here's where he's wrong and where they're wrong. Now, there are tiny points where they're right. Okay, point that out. But here's why overall they're wrong. That would have been preferable. Unfortunately, very few people did that. Uh, breaking points had on a uh, doctor by the name of, I forget his name, Dr. Prashad, Prasad, something like that. And he did a great job going point for point. There was one other YouTube doctor who did a great job rebutting some of the arguments of Malone and McCullough. But that should be what mainstream media is doing. Instead, they're, they're not doing that at all. They're uh, doing a broader culture war conversation. So Neil Young, the musician, steps up and says to Spotify, it's me or Rogan. Um, you know, I don't agree with uh, what Rogan is spreading on your platform. So either get rid of, uh, I'll, either I'll step down and I don't want my stuff on your platform or you get rid of Rogan. That's not really a difficult decision for Spotify, at least not at the time, because uh, Joe Rogan is the number one po podcast in the world by a mile and a half. So um, the reaction was, all right, Neil, we're getting your stuff off of Spotify. Joe came out and responded to Neil Young fleeing, uh, also Joni Mitchell fleeing. And Joe basically said, look, I have a problem with the term misinformation because a lot of the stuff that we thought was factual scientific information at the beginning of the pandemic now turns out to be misinformation. So basically, like, who's really to decide what is and isn't misinformation? Um, so part of what he said was sort of get off my ass, I'm trying my best. And then the other part of what he said was, listen, I'll try to balance things out. Uh, and if I have a controversial vaccine opinion person on, the next episode I'll try to bring on a pro-vaccine uh, person on and we'll balance it out. And also, I will try to prepare more so I'm prepared for almost any claim that can come up if it's controversial to try to rebut it. So it was like a half apology and a half, um, you guys need to not be so definitive with this idea of misinformation because the information has evolved over time and we all need to acknowledge that. Well, that wasn't enough to satiate the crowd. And so you also had Crosby, Stills, and Nash pull out and 
Bruce Springsteen's guitarist pull out of Spotify and podcaster, not podcaster, excuse me, India RE, I think music producer is what she is. She pulled out um, and, you know, you had Spotify, the company losing a tremendous amount of money in, in market share. And so here's where the real, you know, tipping point comes. There's a Democratic super PAC by the name of Midas Touch, and they released a supercut, a long compilation video of Joe saying the N-word, I think, 22 times. And Joe Rogan saw this, was mortified, and then he released this video. I'm making this video to talk about the most regretful and shameful thing that I've ever had to talk about publicly. There's a video that's out that's a compilation of me saying the N-word. It's a video that's made of clips taken out of context of me of 12 years of conversations on my podcast, and it's all smooshed together, and it looks fucking horrible, even to me. Now, I know that to most people, there is no context where a white person is ever allowed to say that word, never mind publicly on a podcast. And I agree with that now. I haven't said it in years, but for a long time, when I would bring that word up, like even come up in conversation, and saying, instead of saying the N-word, I would just say the word. I thought as long as it was in context, people would understand what I was doing. Like that context was part of the clip we were talking about Red Fox, how Red Fox said that word on television in the 1970s, and how times have changed so much since then. Or about how Richard Pryor used it as one of the titles of one of his albums. Or I was quoting a Lenny Bruce bit, or I was qu- quoting a Paul Mooney bit, or a I was talking about how Quentin Tarantino used it repeatedly in Pulp Fiction, or I was talking about how a Netflix executive, ironically, used it because he was trying to compare it to another offensive word, and he said it out loud, and they fired him. Not calling anybody or just saying the word out loud. I was also talking about how there's not another word like it in the entire English language, because it's a word where only one group of people is allowed to use it, and they can use it in so many different ways. Like if a white person says that word, it's racist and toxic, but a black person can use it, and it could be a punchline, it could be a term of endearment, it could be lyrics to a rap song, it could be a positive affirmation. It's a very unusual word, but it's not my word to use. I'm well aware of that now, but for years I used it in that manner. I never used it to be racist because I'm not racist, but whenever you're in a situation where you have to say, I'm not racist, you fucked up, and I clearly have fucked up. And that's my intention to express myself in this video, to say there's nothing I can do to take that back. I wish I could. Obviously, that's not possible. I do hope that, if anything, that this can be a teachable moment. Because I never thought it would ever be taken out of context and put in a video like that. And now that it is, holy shit, it looks bad. And there's another clip that I have to address. There's a clip from 11 years ago. I was telling a story on the podcast about how me and my friend Tommy and his girlfriend, we got really high, we are in Philadelphia, and we went to go see Planet of the Apes. And we didn't know where we were going, we just got dropped off by a cab, and we got dropped off in this all-black neighborhood. And I was trying to make the story entertaining, and I said, we got out, and it was like we were in Africa. It's like we were in Planet of the Apes. I did not, nor would I ever say that black people are apes, but it sure fucking sounded like that. And I immediately afterwards said, that's a racist thing to say. The Planet of the Apes wasn't even in Africa. I was just saying, there's a lot of black people there. But then I went on to talk about what a positive experience it was and how much fun it was to go to see this movie in a black neighborhood. It wasn't a racist story, but it sounded terrible. And like I said, you can have clunky stories about anything, but not about race. 
And so I deleted that whole podcast, but obviously somebody made a clip out of it and taken out of context. It looks terrible, but it looks terrible even in context. It's a fucking idiotic thing to say, and I was just trying to be entertaining. I certainly wasn't trying to be racist, and I certainly would never want to offend someone for entertainment with something as stupid as racism. My apologies and much love. My sincere, deepest apologies and much love. When covering stories about hate crimes, I had the exact same policy where if you're reading a quote of somebody engaged in a hate crime and the quote says, hey, get on the ground, N-word, the policy on this show was to say the actual word so as to not sanitize the situation. So in other words, you're using the word in the context of saying, hey, the word is really bad, and here's how racist the person was who said it. Now, that's not just me who had that policy. It's also the Young Turks. In response to what happened with Joe here, people released a supercut of the Young Turks saying the N-word over and over and over and over and over. And Anna Kasparian came out and tweeted, look, we had a policy of, in the context of a story, if there's a literal quote in the story that says the word, so as to not sanitize the situation, you say the word. Now, understand something. You have every right in the world to be against that policy. That's fine. But when it becomes misleading to the point of lying is when you try to pretend by splicing it out of context and putting it back to back to back to back to back. You try to pretend or at least imply that this is Joe Rogan, a vicious bigot who's just calling people the N-word. I think that's incredibly misleading, super misleading. Now, again, I want to reiterate, if you're against that policy, that's totally fine. Joe said, I stopped doing it. If I was quoting a comedy bit, I stopped doing that because I realized it's probably not the best idea to do that. It's probably not the best idea to say that. I now agree that probably under no context should a white person say that word. He changed his policy. The Young Turks years ago changed their policy. I years ago changed my policy. But if you were to try to be a dishonest smear merchant, you could go back and dig up secular talk clips where I say it three or four times on air because I'm quoting directly from a story where somebody said it. But the thing that is infuriating is that now this is having a tremendous impact on normies. So what I mean by that is people who know nothing about Joe Rogan are now thinking, oh, Joe, like every episode of Joe Rogan is anti-vax claptrap and racism. And so, you know, my mom texted me. My neighbor texted me talking about, oh, Joe Rogan's in hot water. Joe Rogan did this. Joe Rogan did that. And I'm not blaming them because this is just the impression that they're getting from mainstream media. They can't help it. Their narrative is being shaped for them. And it's always people who never really watched the podcast who come away now thinking it's just like, you know, he's like Rush Limbaugh doing interviews or something. And that's just not accurate. And that's just not fair. Now, I'm not saying you can't have criticism of Joe Rogan. I have many criticisms of Joe Rogan. Him and I have argued some of our criticisms on air, like when we debated Medicare for All. But it really is at the point where there's just a bunch of lying going on about him. And look, the smear campaign is working. So in response to this, now this is where it really takes a bizarre turn. So at the same time that this scandal is going on, Spotify removed, as of the recording of this right now, Spotify has removed 113 episodes of the Joe Rogan Experience. Now, 
the normie perception of this and the perception even CNN, they said this on air and it's not true. The normie perception is, oh, they're just pulling down the episodes where he uses racial slurs. That is not true. There are, uh, there were, I think, 22 times in the supercut where he said the word and there are 113 episodes that were pulled. You do the math. Now, another misperception is some people might think, well, they're only really taking down the obviously extreme episodes, like, for example, figures like Alex Jones. Maybe he talked about Sandy Hook or something on there, and they don't want to be associated with that. Or Gavin McGinnis, the like, founder of the Proud Boys, or Owen Benjamin, who's now an openly alt-right loser, or this guy Chuck Johnson, this right-wing writer who argued for, like, you know, literal racism on air, or their genetic differences or whatever between the races, or Milo Yiannopoulos, who has a whole other bunch of problems, or Stefan Molyneux. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, no. You know who else is on that list? Dan Savage is on that list. Mark Maron. Duncan Trussell, a hippie comedian who's to the left of me. T.J. Kirk, the amazing atheist, he's on that ban list. Bill Burr is on that ban list. These are all people whose politics, at the very least, lean left. Some of them are pretty far left. And then you know who else is on that list? Yours truly. I made the list. So I've been on Joe Rogan's show five times. Four of those episodes are still up, at least for now. We'll see what happens as time moves on. But the late 2018 appearance that I did on Joe Rogan's show, after I was, on, was at Politicon and I uh, did some debates and I was on some panels with some Daily Wire people and I uh, you know, aggressively questioned Chris Christie and there was a clip that I debuted on Rogan's show that was that. Um, they pulled down that episode. So the episode number is 1187, and I I was trying to figure out, Crystal and I were talking about this for a while, trying to figure out, why on earth did they ban it? How could they ban that? Why would they ban that? What exactly was said in the podcast? Now, thankfully, so there's bits and pieces that are still up on YouTube. By the way, thank you. Credit to YouTube for being less censorious, at least on this front. Um, And then there's also some other, like, random podcasting outlets that, still have it up. So I went back and I listened to the podcast. So here are this, some of the things we talked about. We, ironically enough, talked about a social media purge that had just happened right before I went on the podcast. There was a, the Free Thought Project was banned, I think, on Facebook. And then you had uh, Police the Police, which is like a police accountability group that was banned. And there was a whole bunch of like anti-war outlets that were banned. So we talked about that and we talked about the slippery slope and the problem with that. And by the way, in the context of that conversation, one of the points I make was Alex Jones was just the tip of the spear. You know, he was like the test case, and nobody likes Alex Jones in polite society. So after he's gone, well, next thing you know, you just open the door, and all of a sudden you're going down to who? Me, getting banned, and whoa, would you look at that? So uh, we talked about that. Uh, We talked about legalizing marijuana. We talked about the drug war and drug cartels in Mexico. We talked about how the Dem Party needs to be reformed, and I went into detail about what I think Democrats need to do. Uh, we, I went after Donald Trump pretty aggressively, uh, praised Bernie Sanders. Uh, Joe made a point about how the men's rights activists have a point with certain issues like custody of kids. Uh, but the big one, so I'm, I'm down to two things that I think it may be as to why it was banned. One of them was when we talked about legalizing marijuana and when I showed the clip of me questioning Chris Christie aggressively on marijuana policy, Joe makes a, an argument about, look, Chris Christie wants to ban drugs, which other people, you know, can be addicted to. But clearly, he has an addiction problem of his own. 
he's addicted to food. And his addiction is arguably more unhealthy than some sort of marijuana addiction or some other kind of drug addiction. But, you know, freedom is like you get to decide what to put in your own body as long as you're not hurting anybody else. And nobody's coming to crack down on him for his addiction, so it's so hypocritical for him to go after other people for their addiction. Now, I guess you can make a stretch of an argument that they say, oh, this is like fat shaming, and we don't allow that on here, so we're going to get rid of that. Maybe that's it, but I think we figured it out. I think in my conversations with Crystal and reading as much as we could about this, we cracked the code and we figured it out. There's a section where we talk about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and I give all the relevant details about it that, that were in the news at the time, and then I really go in hard after Saudi Arabia. And, I mean, I just talk about how they're doing a genocide in Yemen, and they're bombing mosques and open-air markets, and, um, you know, massacring civilians, and uh, blockading the country, and not allowing food in, and there's starvation, there's famine, there's um, a cholera epidemic, they're not allowing medicine in. So I really go in hard after Saudi Arabia. And then come to find out, it was just reported by Reuters in the New York Post that very recently, Spotify made a deal to expand into Saudi Arabia. It's the like, beginning of podcasting in Saudi Arabia where they're allowing it. They expanded into Egypt, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. Now, I don't know if you guys know about how these things work internationally, but you don't just go into a country like Saudi Arabia willy-nilly and free of your own volition and say, we want to have our platform there. No, you need approval, son. You need approval from the Saudi government in order to get your product in Saudi Arabia because it's an authoritarian theocracy. And so, without a doubt, there's no doubt that Spotify had conversations with the Saudi government. And I also have no doubt that Saudi Arabia had terms for the deal. Hey, you want to come in here? That's fine. Here are the ground rules. Here's some things that are no-go zones that we don't like being talked about if you're going to be allowed in this country. There's really no criticism, certainly no vociferous criticism of our government if your platform is going to come in here. Now, look, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Maybe it happened to align with uh, the expansion into Saudi Arabia and the podcast where I criticize Saudi Arabia viciously gets pulled down. Maybe it was a mistake and my podcast was accidentally pulled down and it wasn't supposed to be pulled down. Um, maybe eventually it'll be brought back up. I don't know. But we're not getting any answers. And Spotify needs to release a statement on this and explain my podcast and Duncan Trussell and Bill Burr and TJ Kirk and a bunch of lefties were banned. It's not because he said racial slurs in the episode. He didn't say any racial slurs in the episode. There's a transcript of the podcast. Now, admittedly, it's a bad transcript because it's like AI generated and it's like a lot of stuff is off. But I know for sure there was no use of any racial slurs. I was there. And I, I think I would remember such a thing. So, but there's another angle uh, to this too, which is there's some reporting now that perhaps in, during this firestorm, uh, it was Rogan who gave the green light to Spotify. Like, okay, look, if you've got to pull some podcasts down, you go ahead and pull some podcasts down. Because he's been going through it. I mean, the entire world has turned on him and the media has been going after him relentlessly. And so in the midst of that, it's possible Spotify went to him and they had conversations about the things he said and, and whatnot. And they said, look, to protect you, we need to, you know, take down maybe some of the podcasts where stuff went a little too far. And we don't want to do it, but it's something that we kind of have to do or else they're going to keep coming after you. And so we really want to do this to protect you. And it's conceivable. Again, some reporting says Joe was like, okay, if you got to do it, you got to do it. But again, who came up with that list? How was that list derived? Who made the decisions? 
And how the hell did we get on that list? I think I know the answer because I just laid it out for you in detail, but look, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I want somebody to lay it out there for me and explain to me why I'm wrong and how I'm wrong. And um, the, the criticism, the only criticism re- here of Joe that I think is fair is that he's a really honest person and he assumes good intent in even the critics that are coming after him. But he put out that first apology video thinking it would, like, satiate everybody and everything. And everybody go, oh, he, that's reasonable enough, fair enough. Now, some people said that. Like, the women on The View were like, okay, we'll see what happens. But the rest of mainstream media was not satiated. And the people who are against him were not satiated. And, in fact, the opposite happened. They smelled blood in the water, and they went for the jugular, and they went in for the kill. And then they kept digging up all the, you know, whatever old stuff. And, by the way, more of it's going to come. They're just going to find – they're going to look through every little nook and cranny of that show and find the things that are – most questionable, and they're going to build giant campaigns around it. So if there was any uh, real concern here, Joe could have just done the thing that he said he was going to do without issuing an apology video. Like, he could have just brought on more pro-vaccine people. That would have been great. He could have just prepped more so that he could, you know, push back on the controversial guests who were saying things that could be dead wrong. But he's an honest person, so he thought, I'll put this out, and then it'll all work out. And clearly, that did not work out very well. But really, I think the original sin was just going to Spotify in the first place. Because, look, he was more independent before he went to Spotify. You know, look, he was on YouTube. You're not fully independent on YouTube, and we know that because even though I have zero relationship with anybody at the top of YouTube, right, the, the, the CEO or whatever, um, there is more independence there. Now, they could drop the censorship hammer on me at any time, and the algorithm screws me as it does, and, and all that stuff. But there was more nominal independence where he would just sort of put out whatever. When he made the deal with Spotify, he became the face of Spotify, and they paid him a tremendous amount of money to be more exclusive on their platform. And taking that deal meant that if something like this was going to happen, maybe he wasn't in a position where he could pop his chest out and say, you know, fuck off, we're not pulling any of our episodes down. And so I think the original sin was going to Spotify in the first place. Um, if, if I was close enough with Joe at the time and he asked my opinion, I would have said, don't do it. Don't go to Spotify. You know, you're better off more independent. The more independence you can get, the better you are. And even though, you know, now he has small country money and FU money, it's not like before he wasn't phenomenally wealthy. He was still pulling in millions a year before. And I would have said, that's enough. You don't want to take way more money than that, but also potentially lose your independence. And now it looks like, they're cracking down on his independence. So that would be my criticisms uh, of Joe in the conversation. Now, what's the end game here? Because that's the other conversation. What is the end game here? And I think the answer is the media wants Joe gone. And there's a lot of people who genuinely want him taken down off of Spotify. Now, even if he is taken down off Spotify, he'll go to some other platform or create his own platform. And I don't agree with other people when they say, hey, his audience will get bigger if that happens. I actually don't agree with that. They're sufficiently demonizing him, and the campaign is so aggressive that it is working to some extent. And I think what would happen is he'd lose like 10 or 15% of his audience and be on a new platform, and he'd be fine. Um, But the media, I don't think they want him on any platform. And we can't get through this conversation without bringing up the immense hypocrisy of mainstream media Because these are the people who sold us Russiagate, which turned out to be totally false. There were many lies told uh, around Russiagate. 
There was never a reckoning for that. The people who spread the misinformation, you know, never were fired from being on air or suspended or whatever. Uh, they sold us the Iraq war. I mean, that was a lie that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians and led to torture. And the people who pushed the Iraq war ended up getting promoted. The people who were against the war were the ones who lost their platform, like Jesse Ventura, like um, Phil Donahue and others. It was mainstream media that sold us this financial crisis. They pretended like, no, 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 it's okay. There's not going to be a crash. And then there was a giant crash. They were giving investing advice saying, no, 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 keep investing and you're going to be fine. And then everything went belly up. These are the outlets that sold us the whole Jussie Smollett thing. I saw that story. I'm a lefty. I didn't touch it with a 10-foot pole because I thought, that seems fishy. They went all in on that. That was misinformation. Nobody ever, there was never any accountability over that. CNN just went through the whole Andrew Cuomo scandal where they were, you know, fluffing him up on air and treating him like a hero at the same time he signed an order to get COVID-positive patients back into nursing homes, which led to countless deaths. I mean, the list goes on and on. I could sit here all day and do this. Joanne Reed was caught with very homophobic old blog posts, and she said, I was hacked, and somebody put it in there. Hacked? It was in the Wayback Machine. It was archived. What are there, time-traveling hackers? There was no accountability for that. NBC just hired a guy by the name of Stephen Hayes. Stephen Hayes wrote the book saying that Saddam Hussein worked with al-Qaeda, and that's why we need to do the Iraq War. That is a total lie, based on no evidence. Homeboy wrote a book on it, and he just got hired by NBC. These are deep purveyors of misinformation, deep purveyors of it. Even on the issue of COVID, early on, Dr. Fauci said, hey, masks don't work at all. Don't wear a mask. Well, come to find out, that's not true. N95 masks work 95 to 99% of the time. A KN95 mask work pretty well, too. Uh, cloth masks don't work as well. They only stop 37% of particulate matter, according to a study that came out of Bangladesh. But he said masks don't work and don't wear a mask. And then very soon thereafter, it was viewed as a fact that you should wear a mask and it'll help protect you from COVID-19. They laughed at the idea of the lab leak theory and called it a conspiracy. Come to find out that is possible, if not likely, as to how COVID spread. So even on the topic that they go after him for, they spread misinformation just as bad, if not worse. So uh, they want him gone. And the point here is to make Joe super toxic to normie Americans and more apolitical people and people who don't already watch him. And effectively, this has the chilling effect of maybe forcing him to censor himself because now he's going to walk on eggshells knowing that everybody's going to parse through every single specific thing that he says. And it's an attempt to make the show not what it's supposed to be. And then the other thing is, what's going to happen? Is there ever going to be the next Joe Rogan, the next like podcaster who's really doing their own thing and having these broad conversations? First of all, no company is going to touch somebody like that with a 10 foot pole. And you have to be crazy to be open and uncensored like that. Because you know eventually the hammer is going to drop on you. So it has a chilling effect on discord. So uh, on discourse, excuse me. So um, there you have it. That's what's going on right now with Joe Rogan. That's the entire scandal. And um, look, man, I was censored. My podcast from late 2018 was banned. I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with that. And this is what happens with censorship. It might start with a target that you're like, man, I can sort of see it. But that's the slippery, slippery slope of all time. And people who are really on the left, who are actually on the left, the censorship will always come for you. Why? Because part and parcel of leftism, part of the very definition of leftism, is that you want to change the status quo. No longer do business as usual. And go after powerful institutions 
and reform them and restructure them. So I, it was probably because I went after Saudi Arabia. Now what? You can't criticize Saudi Arabia. I noticed this on my channel. When I criticize Saudi Arabia, video is usually demonetized. Criticize Israel, video is usually demonetized. Um, talk about Syria, video is usually demonetized. And the list goes on and on. There's going to come a time where the people with all the money and all the power, will they even tolerate somebody like me ruthlessly going after the health insurance companies where I call them parasitic mafia middlemen who are price gouging Americans and provide no value whatsoever? Well, they have all the money. They can buy ads. They can control these corporations. So my guess is eventually even criticism like that will not be allowed. So if you're interested in changing society for the better and holding uh, these institutions accountable, I suggest you oppose censorship because you know what? It's a package deal. Like I said, some of these characters are totally odious. Some of these characters, I'd argue with them until I'm blue in the face about how they're wrong about everything, whether it's that Chuck Johnson guy who's openly racist or Stephen Molyneux or, or Owen Benjamin or whoever. But it's a package deal. So if they go, guess what? Then your favorite leftist is going to go too. And we're already seeing it in real time. So it's exactly what we've been warning about every step of the way. And it's here. It's here. So I will try my best. What I'm going to do is try my best to find all the bits and pieces of uh, that podcast. And I will post them on my channel, on Secular Talk, on this channel. YouTube, at least at this point, hasn't banned them. The whole episode is not on YouTube. Bits and pieces are on YouTube. I'll try to post those videos. I'll try to get the whole audio and post that here as well. And then also I'm going to save the other podcast I did with Joe, all five appearances, because who knows when the next one's going to get taken down? Who knows? So there you have it. Don't, don't miss the macro conversation here because you could get bogged down in the particulars and the specifics and go into that N-word uh, conversation and never find your way out. But the fact of the matter is, clearly, this is more than that because it was 113 podcasts that were banned, including ones that had no racially insensitive stuff at all. So everybody needs to be having that conversation. I don't care if you like or dislike Joe Rogan. I don't care. Guess what? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. What I care about is what's now going to happen as a result of this ruthless campaign against him and now Spotify pulling down 113 episodes and counting, by the way, and counting. So we're already very far down that slippery slope. And if you don't see it, you just don't want to see it. Okay, next. Told you it was going to be long. Told you it was going to be a long segment. Matt Lee is uh, an Associated Press foreign policy correspondent or State Department uh, journalist, and he really questioned this guy, Ned Price, the State Department spokesperson, very aggressively over this new claim that's emerged that we now know Russia is planning a false flag attack uh, to invade Ukraine, and 
you know, therefore, it's like basically whatever the U.S. wants to do in response is justified because we, we didn't start it. We didn't do anything. We didn't do anything wrong here. And so if we want to deploy troops to the border, tens of thousands of them, if we want to have the tanks ready to go, if we want to do sanctions not just of the oligarchs but even Russian civilians, hey, don't question us. We're telling you we, we know we have the smoking gun evidence that they're going to do a false flag attack, and we need to be prepared for that. So this journalist has been around the block, and he's going to do a very simple thing. He's going to ask for evidence. And look at how comical this back and forth is. Uh, we told you a few weeks ago that we have information indicating Russia also has already prepositioned a group of operatives to conduct a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine. So that, Matt, to your question, is an action that Russia has already taken. It's an action that you say that they have taken, but you have shown no evidence to, 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 to confirm that. And I'm going to get to the next question here, which is, what is the evidence that they, I mean, this is like crisis actors, really? This is like Alex Jones territory you're getting into then. Um, what evidence do you have to support the idea that there is some propaganda film in the, in, in the making? Now, this is derived uh, from information known to the U.S. government, intelligence information that we have declassified. I think you well, have... Okay, well, where, where is it? Where, where is this information? It is intelligence information that we have declassified. Well, where is it? Where's the declassified information? I just delivered it. But, no, you made a series of allegations and would statements. You, would you like us to print out the topper? Because you will see a transcript of this briefing that you can print out for that's, yourself. That's not evidence, Matt. That's you saying it. That's not evidence. I'm sorry. <laughs> what would you like, Matt? Uh, I, I would like to see some proof that you that 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 that, that you can show that that Matt, you have that, been, that, that shows you, that, that, that you, shows that the Russians are doing this. Matt, I've been doing this for a while. I know that was my point. You and, you and have so. you you have been doing this for quite a while. You know yeah, that yeah. when we declassify intelligence That's information, right. and I we do so in a means. We do so. We do so with an eye to protecting sources and methods. I remember a lot of things. So where, where, where is the declassified information other than you coming out here and saying? Matt, I'm sorry you don't like the format, uh, but we it's have declassified. The it's the content. I'm sorry you don't like the content. I'm sorry it's you. I'm sorry you are doubting the information that is in the possession of the U.S. government. No, I, I, what I'm telling you is that this is information that's available to us. We are making it available to you. Uh, in order uh, for a couple reasons. One is to attempt to deter the Russians from going ahead with this activity. Two, in the event we're not able to do that, in the event the Russians do go ahead with it, to make it clear as day, to lay bare the fact that this has always been an attempt on the part of the Russian Federation to fabricate a pretext. Yes, yeah, but you don't have any, any evidence to back it up other than what you're saying. It's like you're saying, we think we, we, we have information the Russians may do this, but you won't tell us what the information well, is. That, and then when, when, that, when you're that, asked, that is the idea behind when, deterrence. When, that, that is the idea behind deterrence. It is our hope that the Russians don't go forward with this. You say, I just gave it to you. But that, that's not what you you seem not to understand. You seem not to understand the idea of We are trying to deter the Russians from moving forward with this type of activity. That is why we are making it public today. If the Russians don't go forward with this, that is not uh, if so facto an indication that they never had plans to do so. Uh, but then that's unprovable. My <laughs> God, what is the evidence that you have that suggests that, that, that the Russians are even planning this? Matt, I mean, I'm not saying that they're not. But you just come out and say this and expect us just to, to, to believe it 
without you showing a shred of evidence that it's actually true. Other than when I ask, or when anyone else asks, what's the information? You said, well, I just gave it to you, which was just you making a statement. And you said yourself, you've been in this business for quite a long time. You know that when we make information, uh, intelligence information public, we do so uh, in, a, in a way that protects sensitive sources and methods. You also know that we do so, we declassify information only when we're confident in that information. If you doubt, if you doubt the, the credibility of the U.S. government, of the British government, uh, of other governments, and want to, uh, you know, find uh, solace in information that uh, the Russians are putting out, uh, that, is, uh, that is for you to do. So in other words, you are a Russian propagandist or a Russian stooge or a dupe, um, or a foreign asset because you're trusting them over us when all he's doing is saying, I'm agnostic. I just want to see your evidence. If you're going to make a claim, the burden is on you to provide the evidence. That's how it works. That's how it's supposed to work. But usually the rest of the media, when their State Department sources or their CIA sources uh, tell them something, they're stenographers. They take it at face value because they're suckers who are put in these positions specifically for that reason. I'm surprised this AP guy hasn't been fired already. Because there's a number of times he's held this slimy weasel, uh, Ned Price, accountable. And he's so bad at the job. He's so terrible at this. He's like, we know that the Russians are, are now doing this. What's your evidence? I just told you that we know that, that they're going to be doing this. That's not evidence. That's not evidence. Now, understand something. Just like Ned says, I'll say the same thing. I don't know. Is it possible that they're going to do that? Sure. But this is not an agency that has a track record of truth-telling. In fact, quite the opposite. They have a long record of lying about everything. These are the same people that got us into the Iraq war. Now, I'm sure some people involved in the stuff behind the scenes maybe really believed the bullshit, really believed the line of argument, and so they were acting in good faith even though they were wrong, but there's also people who might not be, who might not be acting in good faith, who are lying and know that they're lying. But at the end of the day, all that matters is whether or not what they're saying is true and what that means we should do about it. Now, look, I'm on record. Are there certain things that are on the table in a negotiation with Russia that are more like hardline approaches? Absolutely. Absolutely. So for one thing, um, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, should the U.S. use that as leverage? Sure. Absolutely. In other words, look, if we find some sort of peace agreement and a way out of this, then you can have the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. If you don't, we're going to undercut it, not let you have it, and the U.S. will sell our natural gas to Germany, and we'll sell it at the same price as you guys, even if it's at a loss. That's one thing that you could put on the table. Another thing is, uh, like it or not, these nations are sovereign nations that were the post-Soviet states. So having them armed so they could defend themselves, yeah, that's absolutely on the table. That makes perfect sense. They're sovereign nations. They get to do that if they want to do that. Now, these are things that all these things uh, Russia views as red lines that you can't do. No, don't agree, and that's the whole point of a negotiation. Now, are there other parts of the deal that would be concessions to Russia? Well, yes, because, again, that's part of a negotiation as well. And so uh, I want peace. I want to avoid World War III. So um, does that mean we're not going to do war games on Russia's border anymore with NATO? Yes. Does that mean we're not going to have missiles pointed directly at Russia in, in an allied state of ours? Yes. Does that mean that, you know, uh, NATO should not move an inch closer to Russia's border. Absolutely. Well, those things are true, but it's also true that other things are on the table. But what the U.S. government is trying to do is lay the groundwork and set the preconditions to allow us to do anything and play the victim and 
a play like we're acting defensive every step of the way. But if this is the same organization that lied us into the Iraq war, you know, the State Department, the CIA, these are the same outlets that lied about Russiagate relentlessly for years straight, and they are, well, then you shouldn't take their word for it. They need to actually show evidence if they have such evidence. They're not showing the evidence, which means they don't have such evidence. Again, that's not to say it's impossible that Russia would do this, but you need to prove it. You need to show it. You absolutely need to show it. And so this is a rare instance of a journalist doing their job, doing their job right, doing their job effectively, and really unmasking the, the little weasel State Department spokesperson here. So there you have it. I really hope that the negotiation works and we can find a way to back out of this feud because in the nuclear age with two nuclear armed states, you don't even want to be this close to some sort of fight. You don't. It's for the future of humanity. It's a necessity that you find a way out of this situation. And you need to use all the negotiation skills, all the diplomacy in the world, and you need to be fair-minded and reasonable. And unfortunately, I do not trust the U.S. at all to do that. I don't really trust Russia either, but I also know that our government has lied relentlessly about this stuff. And finally, somebody's holding them accountable. Okay, next. Trump and Pence are now viciously going at each other's throats publicly. So I want to show you this little clip here from CNN. Trump gave a, or excuse me, Pence gave a speech recently to the Federalist Society. Let's take a look, and then I'll show you Trump's reaction. Before Pence spoke, some here didn't see a need for Pence to address his decision to certify the vote because they agree Trump lost. Period. Joe Biden won the election, uh, so I don't, you know, I, I don't know what more I can say. I mean, Joe Biden won the election. Um, the role of the vice president in that is very ceremonial. Um, they counted the electoral ballots. The members of Congress voted to certify. Uh, Joe Biden won the election. I don't think he needs to address it. It's, I mean, what happened, you know. Right, wrong, or indifferent, we lost in 2020. Do you not want to hear Pence correct the record that, that Trump is falsely claiming that he could have overturned the election? I, I think Pence probably feels, I'm not, I don't want to speak for Pence, but I think Pence probably feels that the record does not need to be corrected, otherwise he would correct it. Then came the former vice president's speech. And I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. We went back out to the group after the speech to see how it was received. I was pleasantly surprised uh, with how he handled it. I thought he did a great job. I, I think it's time to move on from the 2020 election and look forward to 2024. I think uh, he's made it clear, the vice president has, that he has a difference of opinion with uh, the president and the president's team over uh, what is the duties of the vice president required on January 6th? Were you happy to hear him address it? Uh, well, I think he needed to address it. This is a great audience. These are constitutional scholars here, so you're speaking to a very educated group. I think Mike Pence was, did the right thing. I think Mike Pence should have done what he felt was right, and it sounds like he did what he felt was right. How do you think, those, do you think that comment will sit with former President Donald Trump being called wrong? Um, <laughs> Probably not well, but I guess we'll have to wait and see what he says. 
part of the problem here is the cuckish, sheepish reaction from these Republican voters. Now, understand something. There's a class divide here. These are Federalist Society members. Federalist Society is dedicated to market deregulation and laissez-faire capitalism and legislating that in an activist way from the bench, from the courts. So these are like Republican elites. And this is the group that Mike Pence appeals more to uh, than Trump does. Trump more appeals to the rank-and-file far-right GOP base, uh, more poor and working-class people. Pence appeals more to now the wealthier Republican elites. It's not to say Trump doesn't have uh, you know, elite support. Of course he does. His biggest legislative accomplishment was cutting taxes for the top 1%. 83% of the benefits of that tax cut bill went to the top 1% and to corporations. So his policies support the wealthy, but the wealthy also don't like all of Trump's antics. And so what you saw there is before the speech that, you know, all sheepish, like, oh, I don't know if he's going to call him out. He's a gentleman. He's a scholar. I don't know if he would do that. And, you know, uh, almost like an underlying, like, I, I hope we can all get along type thing. And then afterwards, they're like, I guess I support it kind of. Mm because they're all afraid of Trump's ire. So Pence was unequivocal there. I did not have the right to overturn the election. Uh, of course, Pence is correct. Correct. He wasn't going to spark a constitutional crisis in an election that fundamentally wasn't that close. It certainly wasn't close enough where there's an open question as to whether or not somebody won. You could argue Bush versus Gore was way closer. When you look at 60 court cases, almost everyone, Donald Trump lost, even Republican judges, even Trump-appointed judges were like, Bro, there's no evidence here. I don't know what you're talking about. The Arizona audit, which found that Biden won by even more than we thought he won on Election Day, it's obvious. It's clear if you're willing to be objective about it and you put your fees aside. So Pence is right about that. Well, Donald Trump doesn't like it. Let me show you his response and throw it up on screen here. Statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th President of the United States of America. Just saw Mike Pence's statement on the fact that he had no right to do anything with respect to the electoral vote count other than being an automatic conveyor belt for the old crow Mitch McConnell to get Biden elected president as quickly as possible. Well, the vice president's position is not an automatic conveyor belt. Uh, hold on, let me pull this up a little more. It's kind of small. Uh, and not an automatic conveyor if obvious signs of voter fraud or irregularities exist. That's why the Democrats and rhinos are working feverishly together to change the very law that Mike Pence and his unwitting advisors used on January 6th to say he had no choice. The reason they wanted to change is because they now say they don't want the vice president to have the right to ensure an honest vote. In other words, I was right and everyone knows it. If there is fraud or large-scale irregularities, it would have been appropriate to send those votes back to the legislatures to figure it out. The Dems and Rhinos want to take that right away. A great opportunity lost, but not forever. In the meantime, our country is going to hell. So what Trump is referring to there is now uh, Congress is moving to remove any doubt and make sure it is not debatable. So they want to move to say, of course the vice president can't overturn the election. Now that's already the case. But the fact that so many on the far right are genuinely insane about that question, they just want to codify it on another level to ensure, no, for real, it literally says it word for word right here. And Trump, of course, this is the hallmark of a conspiracy theory, he takes evidence against his position and spins it as if it's for his position. Oh, why would you need to add that law if it, if it was already the case? that the vice president can't overturn the election. The only reason why they're adding it is because you are psychotic with everything you've been saying over the past year. 
And Trump has gone further and further down that rabbit hole. There were a number of reports that came out. They had literal memos that were ready to go about seizing the voting machines. There was a memo about, like, doing a coup. And here, here are the things that we could say we're doing it for, uh, declaring martial law. All this stuff came out. And, again, since Trump has been out of office, he's gone further and further down this rabbit hole, and he's gone, gotten closer and closer to the my pillow guy position of, like, it's all fake, it's all totally rigged, and um, therefore almost anything that's done in response to that is righting a wrong, is justice. I mean, that's the language he's using. The language is like, look, there was fraud, there were irregularities, we were screwed in the process, it's not fair, so we need to bring about justice, and by any means necessary, that means if I need to do authoritarian take over the country, I'm doing the authoritarianism in defense of democracy. No, you're not. No, you're not. And of course, they, he never brings up the point. 60 court cases, I lost almost every one of them. Arizona audit, I lost by more votes than before. And by the way, this is a huge problem because he still has the heart of the base. And look at the, the, the reactions from the Republicans who aren't with him. Now, Liz Cheney and Kinzinger try to lead the charge against Trump on this front. Uh, this is the one issue where Liz Cheney and Kinzinger are correct. In every other way, they're super far right and insane, supporting every single war, supporting all the deregulation of the marketplace and tax cuts for the rich and all that stuff. But outside of those two, nobody else says it. And even Mike Pence trying to correct the record there was like, President Trump is wrong. If you just say he's wrong and you don't give reasons that are crystal clear as to why he's wrong, you're not really engaging in the fight. So you're trying to fight Trump, who's already more popular than you, with two hands tied behind your back. Who do you think is going to win that fight? In the hearts and minds of the Republican base. Now, maybe it's a fool's errand, and maybe it's impossible to beat him in that argument, even though you got all the facts on your side. That's possible. But that doesn't mean, as a matter of principle, you shouldn't engage in it and get on the record and be clear. Because even if you only sway 10% of the people who are currently on his side, well, for the love of God, that's a big difference, and that's really important. So um, it's bad, man. It's bad. I mean, this guy... And they're trying to, we'll get to a story on this later, they're literally purging the party of all the people who don't believe in what's called the big lie, the idea that Trump won. That's insane. Chris Hedges said it best. At this point, the people who are still diehard Trump defenders, they're functionally a cult. They act like a cult. And I don't see how, any counterargument to that at this point. Yes, early on in 2016 with his campaign, with all of his fake populism and how he was able to beat Hillary, the people who supported him then, no, there were some way more reasonable people at the time. It's not like all the Trump supporters were deplorables and racists early on. But if you're still with him after everything, after he governed like an establishment tool, and you're still with him today, even though not only did he govern like an establishment tool, he's open about the fact like, yeah, I should have overthrown the election and become a dictator. Well, that is a cult, and you are in a cult, and you have no principles beyond, I just like this guy and the way he makes me feel. So, no bueno. I'm happy Trump's, uh, Pence said that, but he should have been more aggressive in it, and I expect him to now keep going at it harder and harder. But it just thinks of the same thing that we saw in 2016 in the sense that the Republican establishment and the elites tried to line up against Trump, and Trump still was able to beat them. And it's because he uses that bully pulpit and because he's aggressive with it. And the counter-arguments just don't land as well, especially to his base. So buckle up, because it's going to be a wild ride. Okay, next. So we discussed a story uh, last week about how Whoopi Goldberg was suspended from The View for two weeks 
after she made some comments on air about the Holocaust, she effectively said, look, the Holocaust wasn't about race. It wasn't about uh, racism. And she tried to do this mea culpa tour afterwards where she does the nightly shows and she says, oh, look, I'm sorry, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I was wrong. Instead, she kind of said, like, she kind of reiterated her point. She's like, Here, here's what I was trying to say, but also I'm not going to talk about it anymore because, you know, I see everybody's pissed and I got it. I'm out. Okay. So uh, apparently Whoopi Goldberg goes after Bill Maher a decent amount. I actually, I didn't know that, or at least if I did know that, I forgot it. I don't remember any segments where she did that. Apparently she does it on a regular basis. So Bill Maher and her have sort of a, you know, media feud going on of sorts. Well, Bill Maher went out on his show and defended Whoopi from the suspension. Take a look. I want to talk about Whoopi Goldberg because I got so many texts this week because she attacked me the week yeah, before. Sure. So she was, everybody was like, oh, Bill, I get you're enjoying the karma. First of all, I'm going to talk about this at the end of my show next week, teacher. But uh, there is no fucking thing as karma, okay? Get over that. <laughs> <laughs> Attacks me on a regular basis. She says stupid shit on a regular basis. It just happened to coincide. <laughs> I, I had on last week Ira Glasser, former longtime head of the ACLU, talking about free speech. Whoopi Goldberg, who, by the way, I hope is still a friend. We can disagree with each other. Should not be canceled or put off her show as much as I totally disagree with her crazy statement. Free speech. You should be there. She shouldn't get a timeout. But it's the view. Well, that's the problem in America. There clearly, is one view, right. one clearly, true actually, opinion, and everybody else can go sit in the corner. Can we just understand that part of our sorry racial history in this country is that the point of view from a black person is often going to be very different and sometimes shocking to a white person. The person at ABC News said, I'd ask you to take time to reflect and learn about the impact of her comments. Reflect. How insulting for someone of her age, who's yeah. a sophisticated person, and the impact of her comments. There is no impact. There aren't neo-Nazis waiting for the green light from the lady on the view. Yeah, so uh, I guess it's kind of unsurprising for Bill Maher to take this position because Bill Maher, I don't know how many of you guys remember this, he used to have a show called Politically Incorrect in the late 90s and early 2000s, and it was on ABC. And he made some comments after 9-11 where he said, look, say what you want about the people who did the terror attack. Yes, they're evil. Yes, they're terrible. Yes, they're brainwashed. Yes, they're terrorists. But they're not cowards because it's not cowardly to stay in the plane as it hits the building. That's the comment that he made. Uh, you know, the media's reaction to that was basically to isolate him saying they're not cowards, effectively saying, like, they were brave. They isolated that, and it was right after 9-11, and so, you know, the fervor in the country was immense, and he was axed as a result of that. Um, and so, you know, ever since then, he's been a strong advocate of uh, free expression. Now, there's a million uh, opinions he has, in my opinion, that are bad. I mean, he's probably the only Bernie Sanders to Amy Klobuchar voter in the country. His, my, his brain really broke during the Trump era. Wasn't that great beforehand, but it's a lot worse now. Um, and he's terrible on Israel-Palestine. There's, there's a number of issues where we can get into. That's not the point of the segment. Um, but look, I, I made a similar argument on my show. Now, there is one little piece of nuance, which I think is important in the conversation, which is I do think a lot of people roll their eyes when free sp speech is brought up in the context of 
Here you have like a multi-million dollar uh, host on, you know, daytime TV with a captive audience of like over a million people. And a lot of people roll their eyes and it's like, you don't have a right to that giant platform. So this really has nothing to do with free speech. And people say, oh, it's a private company too. So why are you conflating the idea of free speech? Look, there is a difference. There is a difference between the legality of the First Amendment, so actual law and the Constitution, and just the concept of freedom of speech. And the point I've always made is, uh, whether you're talking about the legal aspect of free speech or you're talking about um, just the, the concept of it, the principle is the same across the board. Now, yeah, I get it. These are privileged hosts who have giant platforms, uh, so it, it is kind of different. But, I mean, I just think we should make them a little less privileged by taxing them a hell of a lot more and giving people health care and education and paid time off and things of that nature. But, yeah, I wouldn't have suspended it. And here's the thing. The other thing about this conversation and why I wanted to talk about it again is I understand exactly what the criticism is, and I understand, because I had a long, fleshed-out conversation about this behind the scenes, and what I think she was trying to say is that the Holocaust wasn't literally about skin color. So in other words, the Nazis didn't look at the Jews and say they have a darker skin tone than than we do, us Germans do, uh, therefore, you know, we're going to kill them. I think that's the point she was trying to make. And on that front, yeah, you're not going to find anybody who says the Holocaust was literally about skin tone and how much melanin there was. But she, you know, conflated skin tone with just racism. Like, oh, it's not about racism. And Look, it's about bigotry, it's about anti-Semitism, and bigotry and anti-Semitism are under the umbrella of racism. So if, if that's the way you look at it, then of course it's about racism. And the Nazis thought they were creating like a racial hierarchy. But I think the point I'm trying to make here is one of the things I've noticed in the modern era is that everybody tries to interpret a comment from somebody that they might not like as in the least charitable way possible. And I find that really annoying because it's just sloppy and it's just lazy. And nobody would like it if that's done to them. But if it's done to somebody else, everybody like takes glee and joy in twisting a comment or straw manning it as much as possible um, to feel good about themselves and to, you know, stand up in virtue signal and be like, I'm the one, I, I have the correct opinion and everybody else is stupid. And it's just like mental masturbation. And I hate it, and I think it's stupid. Now, that doesn't mean people sometimes don't say horrendously stupid things and you shouldn't pounce. Of course that happens. But I like to try as much as possible to steel man what somebody's saying every time because that's actually intellectually stimulating and interesting, and it's the way that you would treat somebody if you were face-to-face -face with them and if you were having a conversation with them. And I'm telling you, if you do it, it feels a lot better. I think it is a lot better for the national dialogue and the discourse, but it also just feels better. You feel like it's fruitful. You feel like it's substantive. You feel like it's meaningful. And so I get the, argue, I get the backlash to Whoopi 100%, but I definitely wouldn't have suspended her. And I think, I think most people know if they stop and think about it for a second, that's the thing she was trying to say. She wasn't saying it's not about anti-Semitism. She wasn't saying it's not about bigotry. Of course the Holocaust was about anti-Semitism and bigotry. I think the point she was trying to make is it wasn't literally about skin color. So anyway, there you have it. Um, the good news is if you guys hear this and you hate what I'm saying and you want to cancel me, sort of uncancelable because I don't have some CEO or you know, manager lording over me trying to police everything I say. 
And that, by the way, is something I'm very thankful for day in and day out looking at what's going on now. Because everybody who has some sort of management that they have to negotiate with inevitably just ends up in a shitty place. Because they're just, if there's enough of a backlash and enough of outrage around something that's said, it's just guaranteed that you have to try to negotiate the situation and, and, you know, parse things and and try to explain, oh, what, what I meant to say was, and just go on like a defensive tour. And that's just so sad. It's such like a childish thing. Like, what are we all in second grade and somebody just called somebody else a bad word and the teachers are putting us in time out? It's like everybody just needs to grow the fuck up. So anyway, um, that's my breakdown of the situation. This is a rare instance, first time in a long time, that I hear something Bill Maher said where I'm like, okay, I'm kind of with you on that. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, Chris Cuomo is getting paid, son. Wait until you hear this story. We'll be right back, guys. Hang in there.
We are back, y'all. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the show. All right, here we go, baby. Chris Cuomo is about to get paid, son. This is incredible. Take a look. Uh, This is from the Daily Mail, but it's being reported in a number of different places. Chris Cuomo wants to get $9 million from CNN. Fired anchor will be paid half his contract to stop him filing lawsuit claiming that Jeff Zucker and Allison Gullist had ethically dubious relationship with Andrew Cuomo. Fired CNN anchor Chris Cuomo to receive a payout of $9 million. Cuomo was trying to secure $18 million payout, the remainder of his contract, but Jeff Zucker was refusing, arguing he brought the network in disrepute. Zucker, CNN's president, resigned suddenly on Wednesday morning. It's thought Cuomo was planning to file a lawsuit against CNN's parent, AT&T. The suit may contain allegations against Zucker, including how he and his second-in-command, Allison Gallist, coached Governor Andrew Cuomo. Zucker's departure blunts the damage, the damage allegations that may surface that may surface could cause. Let me read that again. Zucker's departure blunts the damage allegations that may surface could cause. I don't know why. Either I'm fundamentally incapable of reading that or that was written in a very clunky way. Anyway, you get the gist of it. What's going on is Chris Cuomo is saying to CNN, hey, dog, I got the dirt. I know where the bodies are buried. So um, if you don't, break me off with some cash, then I'm going to spill the beans. And that's not going to make you guys look good. Now, funny enough, it's like some of the details are leaking just because of the threat of the lawsuit. And so what Chris Cuomo is saying is like, everybody came after me because I was, you know, I sort of held my brother behind the scenes while pretending on air that I wasn't doing that. I was like being objective or whatever. Well, it turns out that as Andrew Cuomo was, signing orders to allow COVID-positive old people back into nursing homes, therefore killing so many people, that Jeff Zucker and his girlfriend were coaching him as it pertains to his daily, like, COVID press briefings. So CNN working hand-in-hand with a governor, a Democratic governor of New York, as, again, CNN nominally pretends like, oh, we're the number one name in news, we're you know, above the fray. We tell it like it is. No, you're just the Democratic version of Fox News. Fox News does propaganda for the Republican Party. You guys do propaganda for the Democratic Party. So Chris Cuomo was like, I'm the one taking all the heat here because of what I did, but you guys all did the same shit. And then, of course, we also learned there's, uh, you know, Jeff Zucker was having this affair with this woman. I think he's divorced and she's divorced, so then they got together. Um, I don't know what the timeline was or whatever, but anyway, they got together and um, Jeff Zucker, according to Katie Couric's book, he, like, really tried to force this woman onto Katie Couric's staff, and he literally had her second in command. Um, I guess you could say, like, almost promoting through the ranks and giving her these very top-level positions because of the personal relationship. He didn't disclose the relationship, even though he was, you know, contractually obligated, uh, according to the rules of CNN or AT&T, too. Uh, disclosed the relationship, so Jeff Zucker recently s- stepped down. But Chris Cuomo is now going to get nine million dollars because Chris Cuomo has dirt on these people, and these people would rather settle out of court. So he wanted eighteen, but I guess in the negotiations going on behind the scenes, that he's settling for nine. But he's going to get nine million dollars for doing Dicky McGee's act, for sitting on his ass cheeks. And 
it's not like, if, by the way, oh, he did such a good job as an anchor that, you know, he deserves the money because it was like an unfair firing. He should have been fired way sooner. But, by the way, now we know why they kept him on as long as they did. They knew he was messing up. They knew it was journalistic malpractice, what he was doing on his show. He was puffing up his brother uh, during the good times, and when the bad times, they didn't say anything. You know, they were like doing propaganda for him, and then when the bad times, they just, 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 just com. They knew he messed up. They knew this was unacceptable, but they kept him on because it's like, oh, if we ask Chris, Chris is going to come after us, and he's got a lot of dirt. Look, it's all, it's all a club. It's all a big club. The idea that these people have any uh, credibility or legitimacy is hilarious. All this uproar over Joe Rogan. It's like the so-called respected institutions are way worse. Never mind all the misinformation that they put out there on a regular basis. They just do propaganda for the Democratic Party on CNN and MSNBC, for you know, the establishment, so their advertisers... You know, they take all this money from all these corporate advertisers. They know, would you look at that? Their messages are pro-corporate. You know, they're not Bernie Sanders types who want to take on the establishment and call out the the corruption and uh, want to restructure everything. No, you should in media call out the corruption and want to make things better for the people. They're not doing that. They're part of the club. They're in the club. And this is the kind of stuff that they do. There's also uh, Radar Online has some stuff that they're saying about how people are furious behind the scenes. I don't know why, but these people love Jeff Zucker. They think he did a good job, even though he did an abysmal job, and CNN ratings have been trash, and the network has, like, no core mission, and, you know, they're sort of a joke. But Jake Tapper loved him. Apparently Jake Tapper's behind the scenes calling Chris Cuomo a terrorist, and uh, Chris Wallace is, is pissed and upset about the Jeff Zucker thing or whatever, and there's a lot of, like, breakdown in the cohesion behind the scenes at CNN. But yet again, it all gets to the same point, man. These are deeply flawed people. And they're not interesting. They're not exceptional. They suck even at the basics of their job. And this is just one of many pieces of evidence that points in that direction. I mean, the other stuff is obvious. We, I mean, we go through the list like every single day on the show. But the fact of the matter is, if you really want to talk about misinformation, these people are the biggest purveyors of misinformation. They pushed Russiagate relentlessly, uh, this idea that Trump is a puppet of Vladimir Putin. I have a million criticisms of Trump, as you all know. I have better criticisms of Trump than these ghouls do. That stuff wasn't true, and they pushed it anyway. They pushed the Iraq war. They were wrong about the financial crisis. They were wrong about the Jussie Smollett thing. They, They tried to cover up the... Cuomo scandal, and they were doing propaganda for a horrendous governor who was making decisions that were killing people. Um, They're routinely incorrect at best, liars at worst, but I'll leave the conversation about the intentions up to you guys to to work it out and determine what you think, where you think they're coming from with a lot of this coverage that they do. Some people, I'm sure, are honest and honestly wrong. Some people are liars. But anyway, Uh, There you have it, CNN, Chris Cuomo getting paid, uh, all because he's got a lot of dirt on Jeff Zucker and uh, the organization more generally. And I I just think pox on all their houses because they're they're all pathetic and they don't deserve the prestige that they get and the reputation that they get as the serious people. They're 
some of the worst in terms of their deleterious effect on the country because the stuff they do is so harmful, but they also have a smug sense of superiority and arrogance as they drive the country into a ditch. Okay, next. There's a study about universal basic income that just came out, and I have to share this with you. So this is in Market Watch, or excuse me, Fast Company. They say, what happened after these unhoused people got $500 checks? Two-thirds have homes. Just $3,000 over six months was enough to fundamentally reshape people's lives. Fundamentally reshape their lives. So uh, let me give you some more here. Here's some of the specifics from this case, which I think took place in San Francisco. In one case, a woman who had lost her job while undergoing cancer treatments couldn't qualify for senior housing, despite the fact that the rent was subsidized because she didn't have enough steady income. The small boost from the basic income pilot was enough for her to meet the requirements and move in. In another case, a man used the funds to relocate out of state where he was able to move in with a friend. Um, In the San Francisco pilot, most people spent the money on food and rent. This is what we learned from the one, uh, from the study out of, I think, Stockton, California. They had another $500 UBI experiment there, and like most of the money went to necessities. Uh, But two people also chose to adopt service dogs to help with their anxiety. Others used the money to help support family members. Uh, One woman used part of the funds each month to buy food to share with children in her neighborhood who didn't have enough to eat. Another used some of the money to buy gas to get to work and clothes to wear on the job. Uh, A person with impaired vision bought some audiobooks. The program was unique because it has a strong social component. So it's a nonprofit company that did it. And what they want to do is... uh, connect people experiencing homelessness with volunteers who basically become their friends and they stay in touch with them weekly and they call them and they text them. And everyone who participated had a volunteer buddy for at least three months. Uh, And so they build a relationship and then they'd also get the $500 a month. They say 77% of recipients said they had lower levels of psychological distress. 77% said that. So two-thirds who, who were homeless got homes, even with just a little $500 a month, and 77% had lower levels of psychological distress. So now, look, this is one study. There's been a number of studies done on UBI. Some of them are mixed results, but a lot of them are, you know, very clearly positive. They did in this study uh, almost pre-vet to get people who they thought the money would most help, because it was a very small study. I think it was only like nine people. But I do think there is something to say about the results. And the point is, sometimes when people are down on their luck, they just need a little bit of help, a little bit of material support and a little bit of friendship and like knowing that somebody cares and that helps get people back on their feet. That helps get people through tough times. In some ways, it's really not surprising, is it? That this view of like otherizing homeless people, like they're just something fundamentally different. Like they don't have a backstory There is no um, explanation as to how they got where they are. It's just people view it in a very dehumanized way. Like, you must be there because of moral failings of your own. Like, you don't know that. 
maybe the person's there because they lost their job uh, during a recession, and then they couldn't get another one, and then they got evicted. Maybe somebody's there because they have mental health issues and, like, one of their caretakers died or something. You don't know. Like, you don't know. These are all people. And if anybody, really anybody, tells you their story, it can be enthralling. Like, people are really complex and nuanced, and anybody who actually opens up and tells you really what's going on in their lives and uh, how they feel and how they got to where they are, it's going to be interesting. It really is. Because everybody, what people tend to do is view themselves in a very complex and nuanced way where you're, you're this sophisticated being that's been through so much stuff and you have an inner narrative and uh, hear all the things that have gone on in my life and how I got to where I am. And, but we tend to view other people in a very in a surface level way. Like it's just, you know, you kind of lump them into a box of like, nice person generally has their stuff together or person's a mess, whatever. It's like, no, everybody's got a detailed story, man. And so when you have a situation where, I forgot the number, what is it, 500,000 or something like that, Americans who are homeless, that's not 500,000 personal individual moral failings. That is uh, the result of a system that's lost its way, at, at best, really, or a system that was structured to be horrendous from the beginning. So this is, I mean, it's an important study, and yet again it leads me to, to – the conclusion that UBI is a, is a good way to go. You guys know me. I support paid vacation time by law. I support a four-day work week. I support universal basic income. And I really think that if you give people a little bit of material well-being, a lot of them will get their act together, you know? A lot of them will be able to clean up and go forward in a way with more dignity and more humanity and more responsibility. And um, what's the alternative is my other question. What's the alternative? I mean, I, I actually, I support a housing first approach too when it comes to homelessness, but like, what's the alternative? Is just let everybody uh, live in a dog-eat-dog world and suffer in silence in perpetuity? I mean, if you want to take that position, okay, but not only is it like callous and immoral, it's also kind of dumb. All right, next. We are going to talk about Johnson & Johnson and the terrible stuff that they did. Johnson & Johnson is involved in some sketchy legal maneuvering in order to dodge accountability for giving people cancer knowingly. Let me go ahead and show you this here. Uh, This was in the Daily Mail, but it's originally reported by Reuters. All the details here are from Reuters. Johnson & Johnson tried to worm its way out of paying $3.5 billion to victims of cancer-causing baby talc by forming a new company and declaring bankruptcy, and then tried to gag journalists from reporting it. Jesus. J&J secretly launched Project Play-Doh last year to shift liability from about about 38,000 pending baby powder talc lawsuits to a newly created subsidiary. The subsidiary company, LTL, was then put into bankruptcy in October in order order for J&J to limit its financial exposure to the lawsuits. Company said it placed LTL into bankruptcy to settle those claims rather than litigating them individually. J&J and claims doing so was legitimate. The claims alleged J&J's talc-based products contained asbestos and caused mesothelioma and ovarian cancer. 
J&J maintains that its consumer talc products are safe and have been confirmed to be asbestos-free. Talc plaintiff committees argue J&J should not be permitted to use bankruptcy to address the talc litigation, and that, and that is deprived claimants of their day in court. U.S. judge has been asked to weigh whether bankruptcy was filed in bad faith. Johnson then tried to get a U.S. judge to block Reuters from publishing a story based on what it said were confidential company documents. So that is downright evil. Johnson Johnson is valued at more than $450 billion, and they had about $31 billion in cash and marketable securities on hand at the end of the last quarter. That's a lot of money. Before the filing, the company faced costs from $3.5 billion in verdicts and settlements, including one in which 22 women were awarded a judgment of more than $2 billion, according to bankruptcy court records. Uh, now Johnson & Johnson proposes to give the subsidiary in bankruptcy $2 billion to put into a trust to compensate all 38,000 current plaintiffs, as well as all future claimants. So do you understand what they're trying to do here? Do, do you understand what they're trying to do? They're saying, we don't want this to affect the entire company and, or bankrupt the entire company, put us out of business, make it so we have to pay out for giving people cancer. So what if we break off a little subsidiary, subsidiary excuse me, put $2 billion in that, file for bankruptcy, and then you only have the $2 billion pool for all 38,000 people to fight over? That's, that's what they're trying to do here. That's effectively what they're trying to do. Now, as a, result of, as a response to this, you have politicians in the U.S. now proposing, some Democrat proposed a bill to ban this maneuver. This like, oh, you're in legal trouble, create a subsidiary, file bankruptcy on the subsidiary, and limit the amount of money that the people can get. They're now trying to change that law to make it illegal. It's kind of crazy it isn't already illegal. I don't know if a judge can maybe find aspects of it illegal right now without that new law in the books. But this is what they're doing. Now, you might pause and say, well, hold on now. I don't think you're actually going to say this, but some people might say this. They might say, if they didn't know what this powder was doing to people and they were selling it, um, is the burden really on them? Like, they thought it was safe. They thought it was effective. They were selling it. People were using it. And then, oh, we learned, oh, God, this actually makes people sick. Um, they changed the formula right after that. Like, are they really liable? Are they really responsible? I mean, what if it just totally puts them out of business? And all because of some sort of mistake, well, now they have to go under. Um, if that is a thought that crossed your mind, well, guess what? A December 2018 Reuters investigation revealed that the company knew for decades about tests showing if talc sometimes contained carcinogenic asbestos, but kept that information from regulators and the public. So in other words, that's not what actually ha What actually happened was not like, whoopsie, we didn't know that this was the case. What happened was, yeah, we know it, but www.shuddy.com, because uh, we don't want to cause a panic and we want to keep selling it because we're making money. And so keep it quiet. And then eventually when all these people got cancer and, you know, mesothelioma and ovarian cancer, um, now they're trying to get accountability and, and justice, and they're doing this Weasley maneuver. So based on the fact, man, I, the whole company should go bankrupt. They should. And, you know, it's not like there won't be 
that hole in the marketplace will be filled, I guarantee you, by some other company that maybe doesn't give people cancer knowingly and sell, sell a product that has horrendous effects as a result of it. It's not hard to imagine. Johnson & Johnson sells all sorts of products, right? It's not hard to imagine a company taking their place while also not effectively killing people knowingly, knowingly giving people cancer. And, uh, you know, what this shows is Johnson & Johnson doesn't care about the impact of their products, and they care more about the profit motive. Now, a fair response is, well, hey, if we have this profit motive in place, maybe any company in Johnson & Johnson's position would have done the same thing. I hope that's not true. That might be true. And if that is true, well, that says something about the profit motive now, doesn't it? That says something about American capitalism now, doesn't it? So it's just a stunning story because the corporate malfeasance, the crimes are just so obvious and stark and right in front of your face. And as we've seen time and time again, if you're an individual who commits a crime, like let's say you're a person who robs a convenience store or something, the whole weight of the state gets dropped on your head and you get uh, really held accountable, and it's a really punitive approach to people who do that. But if you are a legal entity called a corporation and you commit crimes, sometimes you end up paying like a little fine, a little slap on the wrist, and that fine doesn't even equal the amount of money you made in profits for selling a defective product or a product that gives people cancer or whatever. And we've seen it with Goldman Sachs. Um, they, they obviously didn't give people cancer, but they uh, sold people uh, these Package, financial packages that they said were um, going to make them wealthy, and then they turned around and bet on those same packages to fail, that they were just committing fraud. And, they, you know, they get away with it. They get a little slap on the wrist, and then everybody moves on, and they can continue to commit crimes knowing it's going to be profitable no matter what. Well, similar thing here with Johnson & Johnson. They're going to be able to worm their way out of accountability and go along their merry way. You wonder why people are so distrustful of, you know, the authorities, the officials. Well, this is a lot of what happens in the world, isn't it? And that skepticism is well-earned, and people should not let it go. All right, next. So what we're seeing now in the Republican Party is slow motion movement behind the scenes to purge all of the non-Trump right-wingers. So here you're going to see Charlie Kirk is talking to Madison Cawthorn. Cawthorn's, of course, uh, you know, an elected representative. And look at what they say. Kirk here. Madison Cawthorn is with us. Madison, the Republican Party RNC voted yesterday to censure... Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, what are your thoughts? Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, after last night we saw the GOP, the, the GOP and the RNC decided to censure them, uh, I put a call out on my social media for all my patriotic friends here in Congress that we need to quickly and rapidly expel them from the Republican Party. Um, it, this is just basically the signal to the American people that, yes, we'll even hold people in our own party accountable, and this is what's to come when we take power in uh, the next cycle. Two points here. Number one is, how is this not cancel culture? Like, kick them out. They're not 100% in agreement with us. That strikes me as cancel culture. 
no uh, diversity of thought, opinions. Everybody has to be lockstep in agreement, and that's like a fundamentally authoritarian view. Like, there's no wiggle room here. You're with us, you're against us. Okay, that's definitely against culture, especially because when you look at the voting records of Liz Cheney and, and Kinzinger, they're arguably or maybe even objectively more conservative in terms of their voting record than a lot of the MAGA darlings. So, and that leads to the second point. The second point is, notice their litmus tests have nothing to do with policy, which shows you how fundamentally ridiculous their so-called movement is. So you're engaged in politics. This is all you think about. This is all you do. And you don't really care about policy. You don't really care about it at all, by your own admission. So censure them and, and kick them out of the party because they say Joe Biden won the 2020 election, which is an obvious claim to anybody looking at the evidence. But they're not saying like, hey, look, they're against the wall or something, so you've got to kick them out. They're not saying, hey, look, they're, you know, Trump uh, sometimes said some protectionist things about keeping jobs in America, even though he didn't really follow through on that. But and they don't believe that, so that's why we want to kick them out, because they're destroying the American working class, because they're not bringing about the policies that would help save the American working class. That's not what he's saying. That's not what they're saying at all. Not even a little bit. It has nothing to do with any policy. It's all about they're acknowledging the basic fact that Joe Biden won the 2020 election, and that is unacceptable. Fundamentally, an unserious movement. And it's also kind of dangerous because if you want to build the whole party, the whole apparatus is people who believe in this complete falsehood, well, then what are they going to do next time? One of their people loses. I mean, the playbook is just cry foul no matter what the facts are and never shut the hell up about it and rile up the base on those terms. Like, that's what's getting these people animated and riled up. I, how many times can I say the same thing over and over on this show? There's been over 60 court cases. Donald Trump lost almost every one of them. And like the one that he won was over some procedural nonsense that wouldn't change the outcome of the election. Even Trump appointed judges were like, hey, dog, you lost the election. You are incorrect. They did the Arizona audit and the right couldn't wait for that because they thought there's going to prove that Donald Trump won the Arizona audit. Biden won by more votes than we thought he won by on election day. What more evidence do you need? But he goes to show it's not really about evidence. It's about their feelings. It's about we, we like the way that Donald Trump makes us feel. He's the, the lead figure. And so, you know, we march in lockstep with him no matter what. Imagine having loyalty to a person over a principle or a person over a policy. It's just like, why are you even involved in politics? Go do something else which doesn't have incredibly high stakes if this is the operating mode that your mind is stuck on. It's incredibly pathetic. Let's censure people. Let's cancel people. Let's kick them out of the party because they don't agree with us on everything, even though they vote with Trump like 95 or 99% of the time. Uh, not enough because you don't actively perpetuate a lie and an embarrassing one at that. Look, bottom line, Democrats suck. Everybody knows Democrats suck. I talk about that on a daily basis. But if you think these guys are the answer, God damn, you've been chugging Clorox or some shit. Because clearly they're not. They're, they almost broadcast how little they care about improving material conditions in the world. They don't care. It's like a power game. I don't know. Me and my club, me and my homies want to get in power. Vote for us. It's not about policy. It's not about improving your life. 
It's about uh, virtue signaling about how right-wing we are and how MAGA we are, and uh, the people who disagree with us can totally be kicked out of the party. Okay, well then spare me your sanctimonious lectures when free speech comes up about, we all hear differing ideas and opinions, because clearly you don't really believe that. Okay. Now I'm going to give you guys some good news. We actually have some really good news. I have a shocking segment for everybody here. We have some real good news, believe it or not. Uh, Take a look. This is from Reuters. Biden to sign executive order boosting rights of 200,000 construction workers. U.S. President Joe Biden will sign an executive order on Friday requiring project labor agreements and federal construction projects over $35 million, a potential boost to workers and unions that negotiate these deals, and a shift the administration says will speed up building times. The order will apply to $262 billion in federal construction and contracting and impact nearly 200,000 workers, the White House said late on Thursday, confirming news first reported by Reuters. Now, before I give you more specifics, let me just say this. I'm astonished at how terrible Democrats are at politics because this is something he's doing that's good. And I never heard him say anything about it. And the media never covered it. And certainly no Democrats are hitting the Sunday shows and, and, you know, going all in on this narrative. Like, he's boosting construction workers' pay. Isn't that awesome? They just don't do it. They have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing with politics. We covered a a story on the last show, or actually two stories and one on the last show. There's a new Intel semiconductor microchip factory that's being built. There's a new GM, um, you know, electric vehicle and electric battery factory that's being built. This this is in, I think it's Ohio for the semiconductor factory and Michigan for the new GM factories, plural, I believe. And they're going to create thousands of jobs. And this is like the American manufacturing roaring back because what happened is these corporations realized, hey, maybe it isn't our material interest and maybe it's even good for our bottom line to not be so dependent on China and not be so dependent on foreign countries because then when we have a global pandemic and the ports get clogged, we're screwed. And there's like, you know, people can't get the materials they need to build cars. And so they're realizing, well, shit, maybe if we pay workers here a a decent wage as opposed to paying pennies on the dollar overseas, maybe in the long run it actually will be more profitable for us because when we control the supply line from here, we'll be better off. We'll be better off. You don't have to worry about some global cataclysmic event ruining the supply chain and destroying the economy and ruining our bottom line. So, but the Democrats don't talk about it. Nobody went out there and talked about it. The only one I saw was Ro Khanna. But no other Democrat talked about it. No other media outlets covered it. Biden didn't say a goddamn word about it, or if he did, it was in a one-off speech. And so if Trump did this, he would be out there bright. He would have like a 10-tweet thread where he talks about how wonderful he is, and he sucks himself off, and he's like, we're doing a tremendous job, an amazing job, raising pay for construction workers. I am delivering on the MAGA agenda. But these guys, nothing. Crickets. Silence. Bupkis. So anyway, let me give you more information. Project labor agreements are collective bargaining agreements between building trade unions and contractors, which set wages, employment conditions, and dispute resolution uh, on specific projects. Democratic presidents in the past have typically supported applying such agreements to massive U.S. federal con- to the massive U.S. federal contracting budget, while Republican presidents have rescinded them. That's an important point. So when the Democrats get in, they're like, "Let's pay construction workers more." The Republicans get in, they're like, "Let's pay them less." Again, this I'm just describing empirically what's gone on. Okay. The order, which will go into effect immediately, comes on the heels of a $1 trillion infrastructure bill signed into law by Biden that invests 
and the country's roads, ports, and bridges. Much of that money will flow through federal agencies to states and local governments. The new executive order excludes projects funded by grants to non-federal agencies, a senior administration official said, adding that will make up for a bulk of the projects under the bill, but it will apply to billions of other federal spending on waterways, military bases, and other areas. So that's the only problem with this. And since the Democrats, of course, they can't just unequivocally do a good thing. There has to be caveats and, and nuances to it, but that part's bullshit. So in other words, I'll repeat that one more time. Uh, much of the money will flow through federal agencies to states and local governments. The new executive order excludes projects funded by grants to non-federal agencies. So if you're contracting with a private company, this doesn't apply there, a senior administration official said, adding that will make up for a bulk of the projects under the bill, but, but it will apply billions to, of other federal spending on waterways, military bases, and other areas. So when the federal government is directly doing it, that's where you're going to have uh, this effect. When they're directly doing it, and it's a project over $35 million, so for big projects, they're doing it. Look, what this shows is Biden has the ability, he has the capacity with the power of his office to just snap his fingers, write his name, and make working conditions better for countless people. And he doesn't do it nearly as much as he should. So the other good executive order he signed on this front was a $15 minimum wage for uh, all federal employees, but also even private companies that contract with the federal government need to have pay a $15 minimum wage. So on that one, he was like, no, this applies to private companies too. This one, he didn't go that far. I wonder who lobbied against that. But look, he can and he should make it for the private companies too that contract with the federal government. And I'm sure there's aspects of the PRO Act, which is phenomenal pro-union legislation, that he can implement the executive order. David Dane of the American Prospect wrote a phenomenal article. Of, look, here's all the things Biden can do through executive order, where it's not even really debatable. Uh, you know, you can cite the legal statutes that are already there that give him the right to do certain things. And it's on virtually every front he can do stuff through executive order. That's now his only path to being even moderately successful as a president, is to break out that executive order pen, go all in, and dare the right to come after him and try to slap down some of this stuff. Go ahead. I dare you. I, President Joe Biden, am raising the wages for 200,000 construction workers. I dare the Republicans to take me to court over this. Be my guest. Because then I get to clonk you over the head every time I open my mouth about how you literally want to pay construction workers less because you don't care about working people. So that's the move. Um, I, don't, I don't think they'll actually do it, and I don't think Biden will you know, unleash a slew of awesome executive orders. But this is a start, and you've got to give credit where credit is due if you're willing to be fair-minded and objective. All right, next. Oh, no, I got some more Charlie Kirk for you here. I don't want to talk about it, but the topic is too much. I couldn't resist. So Charlie Kirk was on his radio show, his podcast, whatever it is, and um, he made an astonishing claim about what lefties should and shouldn't be allowed to do. So you destroyed California burn it to the ground metaphorically. So then you want to go to Montana and Arizona to continue to spread the pathogen. States that saw the biggest increase in move-ins from San Francisco during the pandemic by raw numbers. And the fewer people are moving to California. 
During the pandemic, the rate of people migrating to California is at a record low, and out of is at a record high. The net domestic California migration by quarter, do you know how many people are leaving California every three months? 200,000 people are leaving California every three months. 200,000 people. And the amount of people moving into it are at record lows as well. So, but here's my, here's my provocative take. The people of Montana should say, you're not welcome here. You don't bring your values and your Berkeley worldview to this untouched slice of God's country. They're going to destroy Montana. They will. They're good at it. The activist groups will infiltrate. The racial groups will, in fact, uh, thankfully there are some good conservatives like the wonderful governor of Montana, my friend Governor Gianforte. But if this is not addressed and this migration continues, they're like locusts. They will not stop. San Francisco, destroy it. Montana, they'll destroy that. And they'll go to Utah. And they'll go to Nevada. And they'll go to Alaska. Whatever the last slice of heaven is, they will try to bring hell to it. Wow. Wow. So first, some obvious points. That is beyond illegal. It is as unconstitutional as you can get. You can't restrict the free flow of movement between states within a country. It's not the way it works. You cannot do that in the U.S., and there's case law about this that goes back a really long time. There are states that wanted to have their own border policy that border Mexico. And even when it comes to bordering Mexico, the states are not allowed to implement their own border policy. That's federal policy. So what do you want? Like, in his theoretical world, could you have all 50 states build their own walls around their respective states? That's not okay. That's not allowed. That is not legal. And that should be obvious. The other point is just this assumption that, like, well, obviously everybody's moving out as a lefty. That's not true at all. Plenty of the people who are, you know, migrating away from left-wing states or, or not left-wing, democratic stronghold states and moving to red states, um, they're righties or they're centrists. Uh, so plenty of them are lefties, but this idea that, like, it's all a monolith. If you're from, you know, a democratic state, it's just, it's a monolith. The whole state is a monolith. Everybody thinks the same. Everybody acts the same. And then, I mean, the point about freedom is the most obvious one. These are the people who pretend, like, he, he values freedom, and he values that almost above all else. This is the opposite of that. This is an authoritarian approach, an authoritarian policy to have the state government of Montana say to people who want to move there who are Americans, you're not welcome here. You're not allowed here. Now, remember, all the time these people, oh, let's have a debate about, you know, our competing values, and I'm all about free speech and open discussion and dialogue, and that's the only way you get the right answer. Does this sound like that? Is that in that spirit and in that vein? It's literally just stay out. We don't like you. And so differing opinions aren't welcome here at all. We want to keep you out. I mean, it's astonishing because, look, you never, ever, ever, ever would hear me say something like that about conservatives moving to, you know, a state that I happen to be in. You'd never hear that, ever. Because I actually believe in that, in the value of freedom. Clearly he doesn't. And also, like, what exactly is your issue? My guess is he would go back to, like, oh, the Republican states are more tough on crime, and that's why I like them. 
And it's like, all right, but let's dive into the detail. Let's dive into the specifics. Because Charlie Kirk told me he wants to legalize marijuana. Okay, so do you agree with me that we should end the drug war? We've wasted trillions of dollars on it. We've locked up more people than any other uh, developed country, maybe any other country on earth per capita. We've ruined so many lives. The crime bill was a disaster. Yes, Democrats were on board with that as well as Republicans. That was all a disaster. So if you really believe in freedom, you want to legalize, tax, and regulate drugs. That's what I want. But if he would say, like, oh, the tough-on-crime thing is why I like Republican states, well, the Republican states are even harsher when it comes to nonviolent so-called crimes. So let's talk about the specifics. What's the problem? What exactly are you against in these more Democratic-leaning states? Are you against the state programs that give more people health care? Is that what you're against? I think the Democratic states have that better figured out, if you ask me. He says, don't bring your values here. They're going to destroy Montana. They're like locusts. They're like locusts, and they're going to bring hell here. Look at, like, the dehumanization and the otherization of people who just disagree with him politically. It's just so silly. Um, by the way, I love how he praises uh, John Forte there, Greg John Forte. I don't know if you guys remember that name, but here's what he's most famous for. Body slamming a reporter. I believe the reporter was like a Guardian reporter. He physically assaulted a reporter. Now, let me ask you a question. If a Democratic politician physically assaulted a reporter, would um, Charlie Kirk be like, yeah, this is my guy here. I like him. Friends with him. No, because if it was a Democrat, he'd be up in arms and screaming about how this is a literal attack on a journalist, which is besmirching the First Amendment and free speech and a free press. And it's an un-American thing to do. And he definitely would say that if it was a Democrat who did, but it's a Republican who did it, and so he thinks it's based. Because, you know, the fake news media is so bad. So, yeah, body slam reporters, assault reporters. That's what that guy's most known for. That's what he's most known for. These guys really are something else, huh? Also, I don't know what Charlie's uh, thoughts are on Joe Rogan, but my guess is he wouldn't have said to Rogan, you shouldn't be allowed to move to Austin, Texas. So do you really believe the thing that you're saying here? Like ban everybody from red states who don't agree with, you know, the entire doctrine of right-wing politics? Do you really believe it? Do you really want that? God, I get it. He's just trying to fill time on his show, but... Clearly, this stuff is not well thought out. Clearly, this stuff is, uh, is dumb. So there you have it. An authoritarian policy promoted by the so-called freedom lovers. Keep your discourse out of here, even though I pretend like I'm in favor of open discourse and free speech. Um, for the record, I have no doubt that if I was governor of a state, or not even that, if I had like... If I was uh, president of a country and I somehow had free reign and I implemented a system that I thought was just and fair, I guarantee you a lot of these younger right-wingers would like it there. And here's what I mean. You have personal freedoms, you know, so you'd be able to partake in uh, whatever substances you'd like. I'd have gambling legal, um, but also people would be provided with the basics. People would have health care, college or trade school, a living wage, unionization, paid vacation time by law, four-day work week, universal basic income. It would be a phenomenal place. <laughs> it would be great. And 
an ideologically diverse group of people would actually say, I, I'm genuinely happy here. But he portrays not just the Democrats, but leftism more generally as like a dystopian hellscape that's authoritarian by its nature, as he ironically argues for an authoritarian policy. Okay. All right, let's go to Fox News. This video is really something. Um, everybody knows how odious Fox News is to the national discourse, or you know, all reasonable people now understand that, given their long track record. Um, here they are. I don't even know what show this is. It seems like it's a nothing throwaway uh, weekend show with a host. I don't, I don't know who it is. I don't even know who the guests are here. But look at how nonchalant this discourse is around a life and death issue. So this is, I think it's called a hit or miss segment. It's like, well, what are you happy about? And what do you dislike? Look at what one of the commentators says. for giving us a showing of what the politics of trying to create a national health care system might look like, which is a total failure. A bill introduced in California last week to replace private health care with a single-payer system hit a stone wall for lack of votes. Among the other things it would do would raise taxes on anybody making more than $50,000 a year. So a big thank you to California one more time for giving us an idea of what simply does not work. Here, 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 Dan, but I fear that this thing will keep coming back. Yeah, gee, I wonder why it will keep coming back. It's almost like people need health care and they don't have it. Why did it not work? Notice he didn't get into that. Why didn't the Medicare for All push work in California? Well, the answer is simple. Corruption. We covered it on this show. Crystal Ball did a phenomenal segment on Crystal, not on Crystal Conference, on Breaking Point. She did a monologue on it where she goes into all the details and gives all the, the, the amount of money that people were bribed. And what happened is a lot of the Democrats, including Gavin Newsom, they virtue signaled like, I'm in favor of single payer and I'm tired of people saying we can't do it. Then push came to shove. We had the ability to do it. They didn't even allow it up for a vote. They didn't even get people on the record. Why? Because it would have showed who was bought off. And it turns out most of them were bought off, or at least enough of them were bought off to not even have the vote. And so they took money from all these different um, health insurance companies and affiliated groups. And so all the virtue signaling was nothing but a lie. And they know at the end of the day, I can't rock the boat too much. I can't piss off my donors too much. And so they tanked it on behalf of industry. So if this Fox News host was being honest, he'd go out there and say, I am with the rapacious mafia parasitic health insurance industry who exists for no reason other than to price gouge people and skim uh, money off the top and get their cut. Look, the way it works in single-payer countries is it's, the reason it's called single-payer is there is a single insurer, and that single insurer is the government, and there's no profit motive. So when you get sick, you get help, and it's paid for by your tax dollars. The way it works here is you need to go to an insurance company, pay the insurance company money every single month, and then when you need help, they say, well, maybe we'll pay for some of it. Maybe we won't. But first you need to pay whatever the, you know, your deductible is, $5,000 or whatever it is. So it's like you pay them every month, and when something happens, they're like, okay, cool. Uh, maybe we'll help you, but first you've got to pay even more. What? 
What? What are you talking about here? So just be honest. You like the fact that the American people get ripped off. You enjoy it because you side with corporations over working people. Just like, oh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. What about every other developed country where it does work? What about the Commonwealth Fund study that had us ranked 11th out of 11 when it comes to uh, developed countries and their healthcare systems? What about that? They notice they can't, they play hide the ball. They can't even be honest and open and talk about the evidence and talk about the data and talk about the studies. This is nothing but rank propaganda. The guy is celebrating denying people health care. Well, you know what the result is of people being denied health care in the United States of America? There was a public citizen report that found that 33% of U.S. COVID deaths could have been avoided if we had universal health care. 33% died because of a, quote, uninsurance. So they don't have health care or they're what's called underinsured. And that made it so they were hesitant to go in because they're like, I don't want to go bankrupt. I don't want to have to pay out the ass for the sickness. I'll try to ride it out. And then they die. About 330 thousand people, because the real number of COVID deaths is over a million when you include the excess deaths that were unaccounted for, 330,000 people dead. This guy's celebrating that California just axed the Medicare for All bill. See, our, this proves that the right-wing systems work better and capitalism works better. But you th- none of the problems were addressed. None of the problems of people dying from not having insurance, people not having good enough insurance, people going bankrupt for medical bills, none of that was addressed. But you're just saying, see, it doesn't work because it didn't get through because of corruption. So you're just pro-corruption. Just say it. I'm pro-corruption, and I'm celebrating that people don't have health care. There's literally no connection to human lives and material well-being in this entire conversation. It's just flat-out partisan pro-capitalist drivel. Don't let, ever let anybody tell you that, you know, Fox News is looking out for workers or Republicans are looking out for workers. Nonsense. Now, the difference is I tell the truth across the board. So when I tell you the Democrats aren't looking out for you either, and it was the Democrats who were corrupted in California, and that's the reason this thing got tanked, you know I'm being honest with you. Because I'll go after both parties. I'll go after whoever's doing the fucked up shit, and I'll give credit to whoever does the good shit. But there are plenty of people who think because the Democrats are so bad and CNN and MSNBC are so bad, therefore, well, maybe Fox News are the truth tellers. No. No, they are not. They are engaging in class war with segments like this, trying to propagandize people into believing it's a good thing when you deny people health care, acting like it's impossible or it's not feasible or, or whatever. None of that is true. You guys know it's not true. But if this may be somebody first time watching this channel, watching this video, I'm trying to explain to them in no uncertain terms. Now you know. Now you know. Look at how horrendous these people are. I mean, look, you've got to have the, the, the decency to at least not openly celebrate such a terrible moment in California politics. But he, they, he doesn't think it's terrible. He thinks it's wonderful. He thinks not having fewer people with health care is actually a good thing because he's an ideologue and he's a Kool-Aid drinker, committed right-winger and capitalist. Everything should be for profit um, and there should be no, no commons, no basics for the people. Smug pricks, all of them smug pricks, doing a tremendous amount of damage in the country. The number of people who've been brainwashed into thinking, it's actually good for the government and corporations to screw you and keep you poor and without health care. The number of people who've been convinced that, it's scary. 
I mean, granted, look, there are plenty of polls that show the overwhelming majority of Americans support universal health care, but there's still a sizable chunk that doesn't. And that sizable chunk, they either work for the industry or they've been thoroughly propagandized by media like this. All right, final story of the daytime, y'all. Joe Manchin did a a media tour where he's going to play the old folksy, oh, shucks, who me? I'm just a West Virginia Democrat. So in other words, he's trying to say, I'm one of the salt of the earth guys. I'm with the working people. I'm not with these Washington, D.C. Democrats who are so out of touch and not connected with regular folks. That's the argument he's going to try to make here. Um, It makes my blood boil more than I can sufficiently describe to you because him and Kirsten Sinema are the biggest problem in the Democratic Party. Not say the others aren't, but they're the worst of the worst. Let's watch, and then I'll respond. I'm not a Washington Democrat. I'm a good old West Virginia Democrat, who likes all my West Virginia Republicans. And I know that I have to have their input for us to get good outcomes for our West Virginia citizens we represent. We have a lot of friends who aren't stereotyped Washington Republicans. Okay, there are Alaska Republicans, and there's all different Republicans who represent the state. Never forget where you came from. Never forget who you work for. Never forget your purpose of being here. And I've always said this. I want to make sure I take care of my country. I'm an American before I'm anything. I'm an American first. And I'm so proud of my country and the opportunities I've had. I also am here to do a job for the people of West Virginia. So they're my employers. They are your employers. So let me show you this next chart. This was polling done by Data for Progress during the middle of the Build Back Better negotiations. A majority of West Virginia voters support the Build Back Better plan. This is the thing that Joe Manchin tanked. Support. 68% of West Virginia likely voters supported the legislation that included universal pre-K, elder care, expanded uh, Medicare, lower prescription drug prices. Democrats, 90% of West Virginia Democrats supported it. Independents, 64% supported it. Republicans, 56% of Republicans supported Build Back Better. Because when you break it down into the individual pieces and policies, people are like, I like this. I need this. In West Virginia, they need it. It's one of the poorest states in the country. They're getting hosed by corporations and the elites. They're getting screwed. And Joe Manchin goes out there and cosplays as a regular person. He virtue signals, I'm a West Virginia Democrat. Never forget who put you in power. But you did. You did forget who put you in power. You're not a West Virginia Democrat. You know who a West Virginia Democrat is? Me. Joe Biden with Build Back Better was a West Virginia Democrat because the policies he pushed for were supported overwhelmingly by West Virginians. And by the way, the media is the worst because at no point did anybody say to Joe Manchin in all the appearances he's done, well, hold on now. You say you're a West Virginia Democrat. West Virginians are with Build Back Better and you're against it. None of them ever said that. None of them ever corrected him. So we get to go out there and do his folksy thing. I'm a good old West Virginia Democrat. You know, unlike the D.C. Democrats, I like Republicans. You know what? I like Republicans, too. And I want them to have health care and higher wages. You don't. You don't. We're the West Virginia Democrats. You are the corrupt Democrat. You are the elitist Democrat. You are the corporate Democrat. You are the epitome of the thing that you pretend to despise. He's just acting. He knows he's acting. It has to be disingenuous. We know it's disingenuous because he knew what the provisions of the bill were. 
He's pretending like he doesn't know or like the provisions were something that West Virginians didn't want. How does anybody sit there with a straight face and listen to this claptrap and not want to lash out in response? God, and he's such a good actor, too, which makes it worse. He's such a good actor. He's out there with the fake sincerity. I'm in touch with the common man. It's these D.C. insiders who are not, these other Democrats. And unfortunately, if people don't know the specifics, they eat it up. They eat it up. But look, I got more for you. This is from More Perfect Union. They did another phenomenal video. Go watch the entire video because I'm only going to show you a piece of it here. But it gets into the specifics of why Joe Manchin is doing what he's doing. It's not ideological, and he's not looking out for the common folks. He's doing the bidding of his donors. Take a look. Joe Manchin is a corporate Democrat. But what does that mean? We investigated his dealings with corporations over the past year. And it's more than just receiving corporate checks, though he gets a lot of those. Joe Manchin is more brazen and direct about the level of corporate corruption that he allows to influence him. Manchin executes policy decisions that corporations peddle to him, and nothing exemplifies that more than the way he swats the Build Back Better bill for working families. For months, Manchin had a familiar refrain. I've always said... If I can't go home and explain it, I can't vote for it. Less unstated is the question, explain it to whom? We found that time and time again, at critical junctures during the debate over Build Back Better, Manchin attended corporate events in West Virginia and stood with executives to declare his opposition to working class legislation, all while setting personal records for corporate fundraising. This summer, just as Congress was about to reconvene and advance the bill, Manchin threw up a giant roadblock. Manchin sat with fellow Republican Senator Shelley Moore Capito at an event at the West Virginia Chamber of Commerce and made a startling announcement. And I'm saying for the first time, and I've thought about this long and hard, whether I would say that today or not, but I think this is the right place. Hit the pause button. Who is that applauding? Let's look at the membership of the West Virginia Chamber. Coal companies Dominion and First Energy and Mylan, the pharmaceutical firm where Manchin's daughter was CEO. I know they're going to go nuts right now in Washington. <laughs> Here they come. Let's look at the stage one more time. This is Steve Roberts, president of the West Virginia Chamber. Who is this person asking the questions? Not a journalist. That's Suzanne Clark, head of the U.S. Chamber, America's largest corporate lobby. How would you describe the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's relationship with Congress? Strong. Clark announced that the U.S. Chamber would pay for a month-long radio, billboard, and TV ad campaign to support Manchin. Thank you for loving West Virginia and putting us first. Thank you, Senator, for what you do for us. Another conservative group, run by Mike Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short, spent $400,000 per week on ads bolstering Manchin's position. Do you understand it now? Do you understand that his corruption dwarfs that of many of the other Democrats who are still corrupt and we still hate? Do you understand that? It's never been more clear. We have the facts and the figures and the numbers to back it up. He intercepted a fantastic article titled Joe Manchin's Dirty Empire, where they get into the specifics of how he's making millions of dollars from dirty energy as he sits on the committee to determine what we're going to do about 
climate change. That's just one example of many. His wife, or excuse me, his daughter was directly involved in the price gouging scandal for Big Pharma, trying to rip people off to pad the bottom line for a pharmaceutical company. Joe Manchin was begged. There was a, a, a pharmaceutical company that was located in West Virginia. Joe Manchin was begged by these people because that company was going to get shut down and the jobs outsourced. Joe Manchin was begged by these West Virginians who he claims to love and support, you've got to help us. You've got to do something. We've got to keep these jobs here. He didn't do it. Why? Because he was with management of the pharma company, not the workers. Not the workers. The guy has sold out a thousand times over, and he's allowed to go on these, these so-called news shows and propagandize everybody and pretend like he's all shucks, good old boy, West Virginia Democrat who's just looking out for West Virginians when it is not true. Same thing with Kirsten Cinema. What does she have? Like an 8% approval rating within the Democratic Party? And the media lets her get away with the lie that, look, she has to act this way. She has to, because it's ideological, so she's an honest actor, and she's more conservative, and she's just representing the Arizona voters. She is not, and Joe Manchin is not. For the love of God, make these people pariahs. Make them pariahs. Protest them. Call their office and express your displeasure. Let's primary him. Let's get him out of there. And I don't want to hear anything about, well, oh, well, what if that, that makes the Republicans win or something? Joe Manchin voted in the last legislative session 60% with Donald Trump. And the argument these people are making is, that's as good as we could do. What do you want? That's as good as we could do. As good as we could do is a Democrat who's basically half Republican. That's as good as we could do. Well, if the Democratic Party is only as good as it's, furthest right-wing Democrat, then just be honest about that. Be open and honest. And if you're being honest, okay, fair enough, then we can have the conversation and it's out in the open. But people try to play hide the ball. Oh, it's not possible. Oh, it's as good as we can get. And oh, he's not as bad as he actually in real life is. It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. Any old blue just won't do. Certainly not Joe Manchin blue. Because he's turned his back on the people. That's Republican voters, Democratic voters, independent voters, and everything else. I know this is a rant I've given time and time again, but I'm fed up with it. I'm sick of it. I can't stomach it anymore. I can't take his folksy bullshit as he lies directly to your face and the media lets him get away with it. And unfortunately, this narrative about him, which is the correct narrative, will barely make a dent. It'll barely make a dent because the dominant media and power structures are invested in making him look like a hero and a maverick and a truth teller and brave. Nothing brave about denying people health care, denying people pre-K, denying people lower drug prices. There's something very corrupt about it. So anyway, spread this message far and wide. Share this video. Uh, like the video. Try to defeat the algorithm by any means necessary because um, people need to know the truth and they're certainly not getting it. All right, guys, we're done. Love you, baby. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of your day. Peace.